Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast, episode 50. To celebrate this milestone in the podcast, I asked listeners to send me questions. And wow, did you all send me questions, hard questions. My lab manager, Mary Rasner, asked your questions and I try my best to respond. I cannot thank you enough for listening. Here's to 50 more episodes. Don't forget to check out the website, www.seeherspeakpodcast.com to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about our guests. Welcome to See Here Speak episode 50. Uh, I am your host, Tiffany Hogan, and it's very exciting to be having a 50th episode. I'm my mind is blown that I'm even recording 50 episodes. If you told me when I recorded the first one that I would be at 50 within five years, uh, I would be very surprised. So it's very exciting to be here. And for this 50th episode, I asked listeners on Twitter and also on my listserv to provide questions that I could answer. And I'm welcoming my lab manager, Mary Rasner, who will be asking those questions. Mary, I'm so happy to have you here. Can you introduce yourself? Hi, yes, thank you. Um, I'm excited to be here and congratulations on 50 episodes. This is very exciting. Um, so I've been your lab manager now for almost five years and I have a master's in library science and my first career was as a public reference librarian and I have since pivoted a bit in my career and I'm now um, working in the lab and have a real passion for all the things that I've learned about dyslexia and DLD. So I'm excited to be here with you today. Thank you so much. Oh, anyone who works in research knows that the lab manager is the key person in the lab to keep everything organized. And Mary helps me run multiple National Institutes of Health studies and other studies that we run through student projects and uh, local collaborations. And of course, we're always, always working towards getting more funding to continue our studies of dyslexia and DLD in the schools. So I'm really thankful to have you here. Well, thank you. And we have some great questions for you today. Um, so I think we should just jump right in. Yeah, That's these the are hard questions. <laughs> they, they are, but they're very interesting. <laughs> I'm excited to hear your answers. Um, so the first question comes from Lynn, and she asks, I would like to hear you reflect on what you feel are the most important oral language, literacy, and learning issues facing our children in school, and what action you think you would transform learning. Also, can you tell us what topics you think are most important for SLPs to learn in grad school? Ooh, this is a tough one. Uh, I know that if you asked another person in my field or in this area of study, they might say something different. From my point of view, I think some of the most pressing issues we're facing is the fact that we're only identifying now about 20% of children who have developmental language disorder. We've seen that since it was first reported in the mid 90s. And we have data even last year showing it's still the case. Sometimes it ranges up to 30%. Uh, so what we're finding is that these children are not identified. Instead, they're flailing and they're, the characteristics of DLD are often represented as misrepresented as personality traits, such as shy, hesitant, inattentive. Um, and, and that would be on the maybe the good side of personality traits. The other side is they're lazy, they don't care. 
they're academically uh, not inclined or don't care, you know, or, you know, or just stupid. Um, and these break my heart because what we know is that developmental language disorder is a neurodiversity that occurs in the brain that we see in every language studied. So what we can do to improve this situation is to create universal screening for this, uh, developmental language disorder, like we see occurring in many states, most states now uh, around dyslexia. And I'd like to see that happen. Another, I think, important issue facing children in schools is that if they aren't identified as having um, the neurodivergence that they are show that they do have, if they're not identified, then they are unfortunately uh, left with either receiving no support, um, a lot of negative consequences around not having support. And an article just came out yesterday showing that this is an intersection also with race and socioeconomic status such that children who have uh, learning disabilities who are um, you know, across the range of socioeconomic status who are children of color are not identified for services, but instead they're pushed into having or being labeled as having a behavioral disorder. And this happens also for children who don't have, are, are not persons of color, but come from low socioeconomic background. So this is a real social justice issue because the children who are receiving those services are ones that have parents who have the means uh, the education and the means to lobby for their children to receive services, um, or we find that they happen to have another dis difficulty like ADHD that gets them a an evaluation that might find that they have also a reading difficulty or a language problem. So this is a real travesty because we're losing out on so much human potential and we're creating a group of children who are neurodivergent, who are flailing and who have low self-esteem and are truly struggling. So the things that we can do uh, are universal screening, as I mentioned, but also create an environment that the classroom has the best evidence-based practice, not only in word reading, which would be systematic explicit phonics instruction across the grades, but that it also has a really language-rich background as well. So you have both of those components because we also know that if a child has language difficulties, um, they, you know, getting services, even the best services where they're seeing perhaps a speech language pathologist or a highly trained special educator being pulled out for intensive services, it's just not enough dosage. What they need is to have a language uh, rich environment throughout the entire day. So they need all the, all the professionals working with them to recognize their neurodiversity and to provide them the best support they can get. Now, this leads to what is the topic I think is most important for SLPs to learn in graduate school. I think it's really related to thinking of the child holistically. So in graduate school, we often are taking classes that are focused on individual difficulties that children might have. So class on speech sound disorder, a class on, if you're lucky, a class on reading disorder like dyslexia, a class on language disorders, a class on autism. And this is you know, to get information to graduate students about these different areas and different um, difficulties children might have, but what it neglects is the high co-occurrence of these difficulties and how they might play out over time. And so we have to think holistically about the child. And this also relates to interprofessional practice, working with all the all the, the adults in the child's life and how to really rally around to work together to get them the services that they need. That's great. Thank you. Such such important information right there. Um, our next question um, comes from Nancy in Massachusetts. 
Um, and she asks or, or says, speech communication and articulation intervention is one of the most common IDEA early intervention services for pre-K, K, and grade one. Statistically, we can see that many students' services stop at articulation or pragmatics by grade one. Later, we see large groups of students end up being behind in phonological and phonemic awareness and our language organization impacting their reading, writing, and oral discourse. But parents do not, do not know that early language challenges can predict these other language and language-related challenges. Could you please explain the developmental impact of language communication challenges or deficits over time so that parents can advocate for the types of services needed with a preventative and proactive agenda? Great question. Um, so yeah, this ties right into what we see in our research studies though. Uh, we, I've been involved in many longitudinal studies and I'm grateful for that opportunity to watch children develop over time um, and to really have an eye towards the development of speech and language skills and how that underpins reading ability. And you're right, like it's just not common knowledge that these are two are linked. What we find in our research is that, um, for instance, in one study, we followed children pre-K to grade three, and we looked at a variety of speech and language uh, indicators and abilities in pre-kindergarten, and these were four and five-year-olds. And then we looked at how they developed those skills over time, testing them every year, pre-K, kindergarten, first, second, third. What we found is that a child's preschool speech and language development and their early code related skills like letter knowledge, phonological awareness, and rapid automatic naming, these skills were directly linked to the third grade abilities in both word reading and in language comprehension related to reading comprehension. It really was less of a red flag situation, more of a crystal ball that we knew that these were so directly linked. And it makes sense because the skills we know uh, children need to learn how to read and comprehend, those skills are developing from birth and even some cool studies showing development in utero. And, uh, you know, I think about this relationship as first off, we know that the two primary components to understanding what you read is word reading and language comprehension. So the ability to turn printed letters into something spoken and the comprehension involves those, you know, that spoken language that's created by print. How do we understand the concepts um, and the discourse related to that, that narrative or expository text? Now, if you take those two components, we can start to think about what are the language under, underpinnings of those two components? And when we think of language, there's three areas. One is the form or the sounds, or the way we're representing the sounds of our language, the phonological aspects. Uh, another is the content of our language. This is the, the vocabulary, the syntax, or so the meaning behind our language that we create. And then there's the pragmatics or the social use of language. So those are the three primary components of language. And what we know is that the phonological component is most directly related to a child's ability to learn to read words. It's not the only thing, but it's a primary driver. And in particular, it's connecting letters and sounds to learn how to read words on a page. So that's the language basis of word reading. The language basis of language comprehension comes from that content or the vocabulary and syntax, morphosyntax around language and the pragmatic social use of language. So those two um, you know, language areas are really what's driving a child's ability to understand 
the language created by print. So when asked what language has to do with it, I say everything because it's from minute one, children are developing those three aspects of language and it's setting them on the trajectory for later reading comprehension. And so for parents to really advocate, first they need to know that if a, their child has early speech and language impairment, that puts them at high risk of having academic difficulties around not only reading, but also math in the future. So as a parent, you can lobby to make sure that that child's getting support. And even if they're dismissed, quote unquote, from services early on, which we definitely see as children make improvements, language is still going to be an area of difficulty for children, and we should always monitor it over time. So even if your child received early intervention, you know, in the in the toddler years, or if they received, you know, preschool intervention of any sort, uh, when they go to formal education, which in the U.S. starts in kindergarten, then you want to have that knowledge as a parent, and you want to really be hyper aware of whether your child might start to fail, and really let the teacher know, you know, they had speech and language difficulties, they seem to be doing well now, but I really want to pay attention to make sure that if he starts to fall behind, uh, that we would get some support services in place. I mean, ideally, uh, what I would love to see is that once a child has a speech and language difficulty um, and they're receiving intervention, that they're always flagged for support services as they continue. Because what we see is that you can have what's called illusionary recovery. So it looks like they're doing okay because the test is not as sensitive to later academic language when it's given in the preschool years. But what we see is they do start to struggle later on. So it would be you know, more advantageous for parents and children if one, it was no, you know, known knowledge that speech and language skills underpin academic uh, achievement. And also that once you have a difficulty, you're always at risk to have further difficulty in speech and language and academics. So I think that would be a really important uh, you know, uh, advocacy role for parents to have as you know, if you're a parent listening to this podcast, well, first off, thank you. And second, this is information you can use to advocate for your child over time. Thank you. Yeah, that's so important. And a passion of mine just to try to get that word out to other parents because you don't know what you don't know. And, and it's you can be a much better advocate with all of this knowledge. So thank you, Tiffany. Um, Nancy also would love to hear you tell us more about the profession of an SLP. Oh, thank you for that question. I do feel like SLPs are a hidden gem and it's, uh, you know, not, they're not a widely known profession. So thank you for asking. So uh, the American Speech Language Hearing Association, their tagline is making effective communication a human right accessible and achievable for all. And I would say that's really what drives speech language pathologists. So as a speech language pathologist, you obtain an undergraduate degree in a field. It doesn't have to be speech language pathologists. Sometimes speech language pathologists come from the background of uh, cognitive psychology, developmental, human development, um, linguistics, um, education. There's a wide variety of, of you know, areas in which SLPs get their initial training, but then you, to become a speech language pathologist, you have to obtain a master's degree. That master's degree is typically a two-year program that involves clinical training that's supervised. So you'd have a professor that would be supervising you as you're giving speech therapy to your client. And then you have to also, after graduation, complete a clinical fellowship year where you have some uh, guidance that first year of your um, practice. And then you obtain what are called your clinical certifications, your C's. 
And if you see a speech language pathologist has a CCC SLP, that means that they have had that year, they have their master's, they've had the year of training, and then they're able to be a certified speech language pathologist. And that requires a state licensure process. So in terms of speech language pathology, we have a wide scope of practice that includes preventing, assessing, diagnosing, treating speech language, social communication, cognitive communication, and swallowing disorders in both children and adults. So it's a wide range. So when you talk to someone who's a speech language pathologist, they may have their entire career worked, for instance, with adults in a hospital setting, working on swallowing disorders, and actually have not much knowledge about childhood language disorders, for instance, because it is a wide range. And I myself, as a speech language pathologist who's only worked in a pediatric population, that I, you know, since grad school, I really don't have the knowledge around working with adults. So, um, and then as I obtained my PhD, I even let go of even more knowledge and I'm very much focused on a deep knowledge around childhood language disorders and literacy. So even someone who might have, uh, you know, deep knowledge about childhood language disorders might not have deep knowledge about literacy, even though I talked about those connections. So because the field's so broad, I think it's important to know that uh, when you work with a speech language pathologist, they typically have an area of expertise, although there are some generalists that work in multiple settings across the lifespan. So speech pathologists work, speaking of settings, they work in research, healthcare, educational settings, but more than half of SLPs, about 60%, I believe, work in school settings. So it is a, a majority, uh, you know, um, in terms of our field. Um, you know, uh, we work with um, you know, in the area of literacy, we're often seen on literacy teams. And ASHA put out in 2001 a, a position statement really highlighting the roles and responsibilities of speech language pathologists with respect to reading and writing in children and adolescents. So in this statement, it really affirms the link between speech and language skills and reading and writing. And it highlights the knowledge speech language pathologists have that can be applied to reading difficulties and the International Dyslexia Association notes that speech language pathologists are among several professionals who can diagnose and treat dyslexia if they have the training and experience with reading assessments and interventions. So a wide range of, um, of uh, scope of practice, but I will say that one uh, pain point for our field is that speech language pathologists often have large caseloads, especially in schools where they're seeing, you know, upwards of 60 to 100 children a year. And that's a lot to be seeing. And many of them see them once or twice or three times a week. So um, it really does uh, put, a, you know, a increased demand and make it difficult for some speech language pathologists who want to be more involved in literacy to actually do so. Uh, so keep that in mind as you're talking to a speech language pathologist the background knowledge they have and their their caseload could impact what they're able to do. Yeah, I from what I've heard, they are expected to to do a lot, especially in school settings, but um, a rewarding profession for sure. Absolutely. I'm so glad I found it. So from um, one of your listeners, Becky, from in on, Ontario, Canada, she asks, what is one statistic or piece of information you wish all SLPs knew about DLD and or literacy? Oh, just one. So difficult. Uh, I think when I think about one statistical piece of information, I think it's the prevalence. Uh, we, we often don't think about how common developmental language disorder is. It is 
the prevalence is seven to about 13% of the population. I typically say 10%. Uh, you might hear a 7% is a more conservative prevalence. But that's one in 10 children. Uh, you, you would expect then just uh, statistically speaking, you would expect there to be about two children in every single classroom in the United States to have uh, DLD. That's about a 1 million kindergartners alone to have developmental language disorder. It's the same prevalence of dyslexia, which also has a wide prevalence range depending on the assessment used and the cut point. Uh, but of course, the, po the population has heard the word dyslexia. It's very common. There's a lot of misinformation about dyslexia, but people have heard of it. Whereas developmental language disorder, most people have not heard of developmental language disorder, even though it's the same prevalence. It's about a 50% overlap between the two. So if you work with children with dyslexia, you work with children with DLD for sure, and vice versa. I wish that people understood that the prevalence is very high. Um, the prevalence is, is sometimes cited as being five times higher than autism, for instance. Um, and so I, I just wish the prevalence was more understood because people will say, I don't know anything about DLD. And I'll say, it's very likely that you actually know someone who has developmental language disorder, but it is a hidden disorder. And, um, you know, children and adults who have developmental language disorder, uh, it's hidden because what we see is that there's a range of severity and, you know, sometimes you know, you could be a couple years behind, which is a little more obvious with young children, definitely not as obvious with adults. And because we choose what we say um, and how we use language every day, it's easy to make choices that uh, limit our use of language. And therefore it can be really something that is hidden, but the person who has DLD often knows they have DLD and feels quite insecure about their language use and uh, makes choices across the lifespan that, that reflect their difficulties in language, and they often do not get support for those difficulties. And instead, they internalize their difficulties as a personality uh, deficit um, and, uh, you know, can really feel very frustrated by their lack of um, the understanding from themselves and others around them. So I do wish people understood the prevalence. Well, so, so important. So, I would imagine also important to those that, that have DLD to know they're not alone um, and, and they might not even realize that someone they know is struggling with those same things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we have really tried to shine a light on this in the DLD and me website. There's a couple of videos we have, uh, you know, having parents talk about their child with DLD. We have a college student that talks about his experience with DLD. Um, and then the rattle or radld.org has lots of videos where persons with DLD who know they have DLD have shared their experience. And that's opened, uh, you know, an awareness to those who might have concerns to say, well, that sounds like me too, you know, and they start to yeah. have community. So I think you're right. That community is so important. Excellent. So our next question for you is from Kathy, and she asks, or she says, the 2E twice exceptional student profile can remain hidden in public schools due to their compensating behaviors and the fact that most schooling focused greatly on teach by telling rather than requiring students to read to gleam information and class discussion. How the 2E student with DLD present in a classroom and in testing? How do we categorize things now? It's really tricky. So uh, first, twice exceptional is a label used for children who have difficulty in one area, but can be gifted in another area. 
So for example, a child may have developmental language disorder, which would make their verbal IQ low, but if you test them in their nonverbal intelligence, for instance, they could show really high scores in the gifted area where they may score, you know, 135 above a 130 would be categorized as gifted in most uh, cases. And so they would be scoring much higher in the nonverbal and lower in the verbal um, this is you know, not a common profile, but it is a profile that we see. And Kathy, you're right. Those children can really remain hidden because they often will use their exceptional ability to mask their difficulty. And um, you know, that can create a very frustrating situation. And we do see that behavioral difficulties are higher in children who have are twice exceptional because of that frustration that they may feel. So even though they may be compensating, uh, they're often aware of this, their difficulties and are feeling very frustrated by them. So I think what the, the antidote to this, or at least part of the antidote to this is that we have to do the universal screening so we can uncover what's hidden. Um, and then I also, we have to be giving comprehensive evaluations so that we have a sense of how well a child's doing in multiple domains of cognitive linguistic ability that would affect their uh, social interactions and their academic performance. So in terms of co-occurrence, if you have one difficulty, uh, then it's very likely you have another. So the rate is an, on average about 50% chance. So for instance, if you have DLD, you have a 50% chance of having dyslexia versus if you're a child without DLD, your chance of dyslexia is about 10%. So the in, it increases and that happens with all types of cognitive linguistic difficulties. So uh, as we're doing a comprehensive examination, it's likely we might find if a child has, for instance, DLD, they may have another difficulty like ADHD, but then they may have an exceptionality as well. So it shows the complexity of individual children. And in the lab, we think of this as the child's cognitive linguistic fingerprint because every single child is different um, in terms of their academic and social performance, and it relates to their individual differences on all those different cognitive linguistic uh, um, abilities. So if a child has developmental language disorder and it's the same severity, like child A and child B have the same severity of difficulty, but child A has really strong um, social skills, for instance, versus child B who doesn't, child B can actually look more severe than they are in language because their social abilities are not helping them. Um, and so the child who has the same severity, child A, can look actually less severe because they're compensating with their social abilities. So maybe they're, you know, really connecting with a teacher or they're sitting close to the teacher. And even it can be done, it's not really a conscious process. So if a child has strong social abilities, for instance, what I've seen is they may be close to the teacher in the classroom because they like that social connection. And because they're closer to the teacher, they may be more likely to get um, access to her and asking questions. And so that can look like, okay, they're doing better because they're getting that support they need because of good social skills, not because of language. And so I do think that these uh, you know, exceptional profiles um, are really difficult at times, but I, I think the comprehensive evaluation and the universal screening can shed light on them and really provide those children the types of supports they need. Thank you. Yeah, that's that's so important and, and just kind of reminds us all that we have to look at the whole child because they're all just so different. Absolutely. Um, 
So our next question, I think you hinted at a little bit in your response earlier, but is DLD new? Great question. So the term developmental language disorder is actually not new. Um, I believe, and I'll link an article in the show notes uh, by Larry Leonard, who wrote about the history of DLD. I believe it was first noted in the 60s. Um, it's always been referring to children who have difficulty in language. Uh, the newness comes from a consensus that was uh, that that came out in 2017 and 18, and that was uh, the the purpose behind the consensus was to get an international group of both researchers and practitioners to start to reconcile the different labels that were used for children who have developmental language disorder. So some countries were using developmental language disorder. Um, uh, some countries were using specific language impairment. Oftentimes there were different terms used in research than in practice. So for instance, in the US, research studies would use uh, tests to characterize children as specific language impairment if they had poor language skills, but uh, average or above average nonverbal intelligence, but in practice, speech language pathologists rarely give a nonverbal intelligence assessment. And when they do find children who have speech and or have language impairment scoring low enough on an assessment for language, they don't categorize them as having specific language impairment. They categorize them according to IDEA categories which qualified the child for services. So in the early years, developmental delay. In preschool, it could be you know, speech and language impairment, which is not a very specific, neither of those are very specific labels uh, for the child. And then later on, they could be categorized as having a specific learning disability, even though at the underlying base, the child may have developmental language disorder that will require late, those different labels to qualify them for services over time. And so there's really a disconnect between what's using what labels are used across the world for these children, what labels are used in research versus practice. Even if you look at like the ICD-10 uh, codes or the uh, DSM-5, for instance, those are manuals that are used either for qualifying uh, for uh, or getting um, access to funds for services through insurance or for uh, that are used by psychological professionals to categorize um, cognitive, linguistic, and mental disorders. There's, I mean, it was just a variety. And so having a variety of labels made it very difficult to advocate for children who all are showing the same profile. So this uh, consensus came up with the label and really through the consensus process, decided to use the term developmental language disorder, which then created uh, uh, this campaign, which is raising awareness of DLD, which is the Rattle campaign, R-A-D-L-D.org. And that is across the whole entire world. So in the US, we had really the slowest uptake of the term DLD because of the complexity of our system and because our research studies have primarily used the label specific language impairment. We don't want to negate all of that work that's been done under the label of specific language impairment. There are some nuances to the label of DLD versus SLI, and that is that uh, the nonverbal IQ criteria, which again is rarely used by clinicians, but for researchers, uh, there was a debate even amongst researchers, like where do you have the cut point of what is typical nonverbal IQ? And some would say it's above 70 because below 70 is mental is where you have uh, mental retardation as the label or mental or intellectual disability now um, was under 70. 
And so they would say, well, you know, as long as they don't qualify as having an intellectual disability, they could, you know, count as having, um, you know, um, adequate nonverbal intelligence to receive a label of specific language impairment. Um, and then some researchers will say, no, I want to be really uh, more conservative and have a cut point of 85. And so, you know, uh, about 50% of studies would use this 85 cut point and 50% would use a 70. And so then really reconciling those two groups of researchers to really go under one label required some consensus and some debate. So um, through that debate, it really has a, uh, uh, you know, we've really thought through what are some of the pros and cons, and there's just a lot of pros to really thinking through one label that can be used across the world for advocating, especially with social media now and the connectivity across the world. You could easily connect with someone in Australia who has DLD, and you have DLD, and you can, you know, connect on, on that level. Um, and now what we have to do is think through how to get the consensus across all of those uh, groups that I mentioned and all those different codings through the DSM-5 and IDEA and um, research and clinicians and ICD uh, codes. Um, that's something we're working towards, but uh, DLD is not a new label. And much of the work that's done on specific language impairment or primary language impairment or language learning impairment is uh, really characterizing these same children. And so we can use that research when we're thinking about DLD. We can say, okay, the research on specific language impairment, that applies to what we call DLD now. So there's a rich history um, and research and practice that we can pull from when we think about uh, this consensus, the new consensus around calling these children developmental language disorder. I think that's fantastic. I like the idea of having that one label that, you know, we really are worldwide when we talk about a lot of these things. So it's great to be able to have a common, a common term and label. Um, okay, let's see. We have another great question for you here um, from Everyone Readings Pennsylvania, um, and they write that they screens and they screen and advocate for students who have language and literacy deficits. We encounter many students who have um, discrepant language profiles that impact their literacy development, but that might not that might go undetected or misdiagnosed by school systems. Unfortunately, these kids often come to us late in to us in late elementary or middle school presenting with attention, behavior, and or social emotional issues. It's not until we guide these families to comprehensive language and literacy testing that the underlying language needs that are impacting their children are teased out. Many times academic needs can be seen in writing also as an area of need that can go undetected. Unfortunately, the type of comprehensive testing that is required to identify the needs of students who might mask needs on more common achievement speech and, and speech and language assessments is just not accessible to many families. Do you see any changes on the horizon for how public school systems evaluate and treat students who might have more subtle language processing needs that impact them academically? This is a great question from Everyone Reads Pennsylvania. Uh, and it really underscores a lot of the work that we do and what we've seen, again, in these longitudinal studies. So these children who are coming to you late in late elementary or middle school who are presenting with these attention, behavioral and social emotional issues, um, these are the children that we that have been categorized as late emerging poor readers. Um, and what we find is that these children are not actually late emerging poor readers. These children are late identified. 
which you hint to in your question, because these children, when we look at longitudinal studies and we have the privilege of examining a lot of their abilities prior to seeing their academic failure. And so what we find is that um, we can look back and show that they always had language difficulties, but that language was not being assessed in the early grades. Uh, we even have a study where we tapped into some nationwide daycare data, where we looked at children who were in fifth grade, who were categorized as being poor comprehenders, so they could read words, but they didn't understand what they were reading, and they were late identified, so those late emerging poor readers. And we had data on their language and cognition from as early as 15 months through this daycare study. And what we showed is even in toddlerhood, you could see that they had language difficulties that were emerging and that were consistent uh, starting, you know, in preschool. And, you know, they were never identified, even though they had these struggles. And it goes back to this idea that a lot of times they can mask them. And in particular, the group of children who can mask uh, these language problems and therefore be identified later are the groups of children who have good word reading ability. So about half of children with developmental language disorder also have good word reading. And because word reading is the focus of early elementary school, uh, you see that if they're able to read the words, then everyone thinks they're fine. And there used to be this view that if children had the language and cognitive abilities to learn how to read words, then surely they had the abilities to comprehend what they read. But we know that they're two, they're highly overlapping but separable abilities, word reading and language comprehension. And so um, another factor that plays into this is that early comprehension measures in you know, early grades, um, you know, first grade, second grade, these early reading comprehension measures that ask children to read a short passage and answer questions, they say they tap into comprehension, but what we find is that they're really word reading measures. Because if you look at a child's ability to answer those reading comprehension questions, it's predicted by their ability to read the words. And when we look at those passages, what we find is that to create passages that allow children to be able to read them in the early grades, the language is actually very basic. So basic that even children who have difficulties with language can answer the questions um, on those passages. And there's also difficulty with background knowledge. So there was a seminal study that showed that uh, about 75% of comprehension uh, assessments in the early grades in particular, that children could answer the questions about the passage before they even read the passage. So it wasn't the reading of the passage <laughs> that got them the, the responses. It was just their background knowledge. So they could answer it without even reading it. Um, so you're tapping into some background knowledge uh, factors. So the early assessments for comprehension are not sensitive enough or hard enough to reveal language difficulties, but as passages become more complex in the later grades, the language becomes more complex and therefore you start to reveal language difficulties that were always there. So one way that we can think about changing this in the public schools is to, again, assess language in and of itself, language, language comprehension abilities in the early grades, separate of word reading. And schools have made, I think, amazing improvements around the science of reading and because of dyslexia, uh, decoding dyslexia and dyslexia laws across the states, they've made great improvement in getting early word reading assessments into the public school system. 
Uh, and those early reading assessments are starting to reveal when children have difficulties in word reading. And then now schools are tasked with creating systems that support children who are struggling with word reading. And that's very hard to do, but the schools are moving towards this. But what we don't see is that schools are giving an early language comprehension assessment um, that doesn't involve reading. And so that's going to be needed that we you know we need to set that same system up that's in place for dyslexia screening. We have to have that for DLD screening. And we also have to have a system that supports children and their language comprehension abilities separate of word reading skills. So um, we've been working on a curricula that, um, that was developed for the classroom through the Reading for Understanding Initiative through the Department of Education. And that curriculum uh, was developed in 2010 to 2015. And we have a randomized control trial uh, that shows that we were able to improve children's language skills. And this was in pre-K to grade three. And this was absolutely separate of word reading. So it involved texts and books, but those books, we didn't require children to read those books. Those books were read aloud and had the complex language that was needed to stimulate child's language skills. And we know we need different types of books, decodables that allow for practicing of patterns that children are reading. And those decodables don't have the language rich um, vocabulary and syntax that we need for language stimulation. So we have to think about it um, as really a, a response intervention model that includes word reading. And also we have a separate response intervention model that includes language comprehension and the way we can connect those two is through writing instruction. And all of these have to be done in a systematic explicit um, way that has a scope and sequence that builds on each other over time. And this is hard because to do these things, we have to have high quality materials. We do have high quality materials for word reading, but high quality materials for language comprehension and for writing are emerging. Uh, there's some great materials out there, but they're not as, you know, maybe as uh, tested as thoroughly as the others in word reading. So we're, you know, working on that now. We had that randomized control trial with a large group of, of researchers and, and uh, educators from 2010 to 2015. And now we're testing the adaptation of that curriculum for a small group tier two instruction for children who fail a language screener in particular for this grant for grade one. And so we're doing a randomized control trial at that tier two or small group level for children who fail language screeners. And hopefully we can provide some evidence to support um, improved language outcomes for children by using small group instruction. But I think that in general on the horizon for public schools is trying to identify children early and provide early support in both of these areas and not wait until the later grades. And we do see that even in formal education, there's a lot of focus on word reading. And then later in the later grades, we focus on comprehension. When we have to focus on both word reading and comprehension all the way through the grades to ensure that children are getting skills in both areas for um, the best reading comprehension that they can get. And we hear a lot about the knowledge gap, for instance, but with the knowledge gap, um, you know, it's very important. And we do see a knowledge gap, but the way children learn knowledge is through language comprehension and language rich instruction. So language rich instruction is the conduit to get knowledge um, uh, to children and so that they don't have that knowledge gap. So it all ties together. But, I, you know, saying that it's easy to do in practice, that's a whole nother thing. It's not easy to get all of this into practice because there's lots of barriers and facilitators and systematic issues that are involved. So that's really 
another you know thing about, that's on the horizon for us is thinking about how to get that into practice. That is always the struggle, but you're doing amazing work in this field. And I think we're going to get there. The public schools yes. are going to get there. Um, so let's see where else we have. We have another question. This one comes from Harriet in California. And the question is, I know you've written about implementation science, and I would love an update regarding research in the science of teaching reading. Oh, great question. And you really hit on an area that I'm so passionate about because of, you know, thinking about how to get research into practice, um, you know, and realizing that there's a large gap. Uh, this field of implementation science is fairly new. It came out of the medical field in the early 2000s uh, because of the recognition that it takes, uh, you know, that very little research uh, is actually put into practice. So the often cited statistic is it takes uh, approximately 17 years for only 14% of research to make it into practice. And this is research that's effective. So, you know, do these research studies, you show this great effect and these improved outcomes in children or patients, whether it's medical or education, but whether that makes it into practice is a whole nother story. So implementation science is a rigorous science that focuses on how to reduce the gap between efficacious research and what happens in practice. And um, this is really gets at the heart of the science of teaching reading, because there's science of reading, which is what we know about the reading process and development of reading skills over time. And then there's that whole area of teaching reading. And that's a whole another area. And um, one thing we know for sure is that if you take into account how children are taught in the science of learning and teaching, we're more likely to get the science of reading into practice. So said another way, it's not the effect size or the efficacy of research that actually predicts what makes it into practice. It's the match between the practice setting or the school system in this way, the school setting and the research that is done. So if we have great research findings, for instance, in a lab, and we're working with children one-on-one -on -one, and they're seen by a highly educated person and we show these great effects, that's not matching what's happening in the school system. You know, children are often not seen for multiple hours of the day for a specific intensive intervention by a highly educated person in this area. So what we have to do is think about um, having research that better matches the practice setting. So research that better matches the parameters of the school system. And we've been working towards that ourselves. Um, and an example is when we created that curriculum for language comprehension, we had a lot of choices to make, like how long do we see the children? How many times a week do we see the children? What are the lessons like? And so we worked with our school partners, our teachers, our educators, our administrators to say what, what would work in practice. And they told us, you know, 30 minutes a day is about what we can give to this area. We have lots of other priorities. Uh, four days a week would be good because if you do five days a week, we often have, you know, uh, in-service days or field trips or snow days. So four days a week would be ideal. And these are the things that we took into consideration as we developed that curricula because we wanted it to be something that if it was effective, it would make it into practice. What we didn't account for is actually how to get it into the hands of practitioners because I'll link in the show notes that this curricula is available for free, but because we didn't work with a publisher, no one really knew about it and we're not marketers. So that's a lesson learned and, and a good lesson learned because we can do research that's impactful, but if we don't figure out ways to disseminate it to those who are going to use it, it's never going to get into practice. 
So with implementation science, um, you know, this is an area that has been slow to really uh, be a focus for education, although it's, you know, it's came around, you know, in, in really the mid 2000s. Um, there's a fabulous article about implementation in 2018 in the International Dyslexia Association. And uh, I have a special issue coming out with my colleague, Rosanna Komosedu, on implementation science in the educational setting. And many people have been thinking about research to practice partnerships in education for quite some time. Um, and a lot of the work that's funded by the Department of Ed Education focuses on working with schools and in school settings, even to get funding, you need to be working with school partners. So even there's just a lot going on around this area, but it is still new. And um, last year, as a part of my sabbatical, I focused on implementation science and created a conference online about implementation science, uh, in particular for the field of speech language pathologists, because you know we really didn't even think about implementation science fully until the you know 2011 and had the first um, focused uh, focused special issues on it um, for scientists in 2015. So this is last year, the first uh, conference, which, which was solely focused on uh, speech language pathologists by speech language pathologists working in implementation science. And this year we have the conference again, so I'll do a plug for it right now that we have it at the end of this month. Um, and it's online, it's a uh, very low price point, so it's accessible and uh, it's virtual. So uh, if you wanna learn more about implementation science and working together as researchers and educators, I would love to have you join the conference. But I think that implementation science is gonna be the key to really think through uh, the science of teaching reading and what that involves. Thank you. And I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to that conference at the end of the month. It was fabulous last year. And, and this year I've, I've had some sneak peeks. It's going to be amazing. So thank you. Um, let's see, what do we have next? Um, how do you, how can we get DLD into CPT codes? If we can get the coding aligned, DLD is more likely to be utilized more consistently. Oh, this is a great question. So we have been working so hard um, we, as in the collective, we, everyone involved in raising awareness of DLD, the clinicians that are passionate about DLD, so many people, and um, that has resulted in some great alignment that's occurring. So the new ICD-11 codes do include developmental language disorder, so that's fantastic. Uh, the DSM-5 includes reference for developmental language disorder, and I've been working with ASHA to advocate uh, at the level of the, Depart the Federal Department of Education in the United States to have um, guidance around the use of DLD for qualifying children for services, and in particular, just letting um, clinicians um, and educators know that you can use the term developmental language disorder. It's not precluded by IDEA. And um, if we use it, we can educate our parents and children about what it is and get more consistent services. So the alignment is occurring. We're starting to see it happen. And I'm very excited to see that that happening because you're right. If we can get better alignment, then the term will be used more readily and we will have more, um, I think, more awareness and support for those who have developmental language disorder. That's fantastic. Um, this next one is a, is a great question. Um, what is your best recommendation for integrating SLP knowledge of language with schools of education? So teacher prep programs. This is a this is a tricky one. It's something that people have been working on for many, many, many years, several decades. 
And, um, you know, I don't think there's one best recommendation, but I will tell you what we've done to um, make some improvements in this area. And I think it, I think it is making a difference. We have a program in our, that's housed in our Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders for our, with our speech language pathology program. That's a certificate of advanced study in language and literacy disorders that is for both speech language pathologists and educators. So I, that's the program I teach in. And so I teach courses that include about 50% of graduate students in speech language pathology and 50% of educators who are coming back for this advanced certificate. So when you graduate, um, you have those who are educators who have uh, this advanced certificate in both language and literacy. So they have that shared knowledge about the language basis of literacy. And you have speech language pathologists who uh, graduate with a degree in speech language pathologists and an advanced certificate to be a reading specialist or to work in you know literacy teams. And I think that you know, interprofessional practice and training together is ideal. That's not always available in the infrastructure of teacher preparation programs. When it is, it's fantastic. I do know teacher preparation programs who are working towards this so that speech pathologists take a course with educators and educators take a course with speech pathologists and they talk about, you know, the language basis of reading. At the minimum, the recommendation is that teacher prep programs have a course um, that really does think deeply about the language basis of literacy. That would be ideal. Great. Yes, I, I agree. That sounds fabulous. Um, our next question is, how can the field promote the creation of valid and reliable assessment tools with appropriate sensitivity and specificity and eliminate those that do not? This is diagnostic accuracy. Why is this not a high priority? Oh, this is a great question. And I, yeah, it's, it's a real need. We need to have focused funding on uh, creating uh, these valid and reliable measures. And I think we need to have more training on what is sensitivity and specificity, what is diagnostic accuracy, all of this. Something I've been involved in, which uh, has, I think, made a big difference um, and kind of surprises me the difference it's made is I've been involved in this initiative from the federal government to create a tools chart, and I can link it in the show notes. The tools chart was funded by the federal government, and it was an initiative to have researchers and methodologists, those who are um, very knowledgeable in assessment practices and tools and development to review assessment tools that uh, are used in schools and then to put that review online. So what we did is we met, uh, this was in, gosh, now I wanna say it was 2010. Uh, so it's been about 13 years now. We met as a group, there was maybe 15 of us that met in DC and we spent a day, you know, looking at definitions, like what is the definition of a screening tool? What is the definition of a progress monitoring tool? And that took a long time. And then we laid out guidelines to how we would rate high quality assessments. And then we sent that out to publishers of assessments and asked them to submit their, their assessment for us to review. So they did, we reviewed it and we used a consumer report style um, process in which we gave like full bubbles to like those that met the highest quality, half bubbles to those who are in the middle and an empty bubble if they didn't. And we put this on a website. Now publishers, when they gave us their tool, it was their choice once they received their rating, whether they decided to put it on the website or not. The website was created for primarily for 
superintendents, administrators, even Department of Education and at the state level to be able to look and see what are the best tools, what are the highest, uh, the tools that meet the highest level of uh, scientific evidence for use. Um, and so the publishers that got poor ratings chose not to have their tools on the chart, as you can imagine. Well, what we found is that um, educators, administrators, Department of Education, they started looking at this tools chart and they started buying the assessments that had high ratings. And then what that told publishers is they better fix their assessment to make it better to get on the tools chart. And so then every year, and I just got the notice that we're getting ready to review, review assessments again, Every year we've reviewed assessments and every year what I see is publishers coming back with improved assessments because they wanna be on the tools chart. Because if they're on the tools chart, they're more likely for that assessment to be purchased. And over time, we've also raised our standards um, now to have more culturally sensitive assessments. Um, we've raised our standards and what the outcomes are. Um, we've also added math and multiple grade levels. So the tools chart has really expanded. And what I've seen is that that uh, process really put pressure on publishers to create better assessments. And so I think we can think creatively about how to do this, but I think, uh, you know, reviewing tools in a public forum like that can help improve them. And I also think that, uh, you know, putting funding towards uh, creating better assessments is also something that will drive the field to focus on this important area uh, and priority. Well, it, it is amazing to see how publishers, you know, it's it's about money for them. So if they're on that list, it, it matters. Um, Absolutely. And we're seeing that now with curricula, you know, curricula is starting to be evaluated by Department of Education. And they're saying, you know, you can't use this curriculum in this state unless it meets the standard and publishers are paying attention. And that will only improve our the curricula that's used for our children. Which is which is the ultimate goal. Yes. Um, all right, I have a question here from Jill. She writes, my child still misarticulates F and V, like he still says deaf for deaf. I see this in his spelling errors. What is that connection between articulation errors and spelling? I find this to be very fascinating because even though we say that children with dyslexia have a phonological deficit, um, some of them don't have articulation errors that you might predict they would have if they have difficulty with sounds and remembering sounds. But also we see some children who have difficulty with articulation don't go on to have dyslexia. So it's not a perfect match between representing the sounds in a word and producing them uh, for speech. And so that's that's kind of fascinating. But in terms of the misarticulation and spelling, we, there's a lot of cool work. Uh, Joy Stackhouse did some great work out of the UK um, a couple of decades ago now, um, where she looked at children who have difficulties in certain these misarticulations, and even children who resolved their misarticulation. So Jill, you're saying your child still says deaf, D-E-A-F for deaf, D-E-A-T-H. But even if he didn't say that anymore, and he used to, Joy Stackhouse found that those errors can emerge again in spelling. So what this tells us is that when children are misarticulating sounds, even when they get the correct articulation, they may still store the misarticulation together with the correct pronunciation. And that means that when they're spelling, they might pull from the misarticulation that they stored in the past. So almost like a trace, a trace of the error is left behind. 
Um, and so it really is, it does show that there is a strong connection between articulation and spelling. And we also have great work from Kelly Farquharson, who shows that, um, you know, even if a child, um, you know, looks like they have strong word reading abilities or strong language skills, if they have a speech sound disorder around articulation and producing speech sounds, they are higher risk for having problems later on, even if it's not apparent right away. So again, this really goes back to this connection between speech and language, but we've also found this other relationship that occurs. So you asked about how, you know, the connection between articulation errors and spelling. Um, and I've talked about how articulation errors can affect spelling, but we also find that as children learn to spell words, they can also start to correct misarticulations because they see a visual representation of transient speech. So as what I would predict is your child actually might start becoming more aware of this, this difference that they're, you know, if they're trying, if they say death as deaf, and then they see it spelled as death, they might start to really start to say the word as death now because they see, oh, that's how it should be pronounced because that's how it's spelled. So it is bi-directional and I've done some studies and others have done studies showing that when you learn a new word, if you show the written form of that word, when you learn it, you're more likely to articulate it correctly, even if the written form isn't there. So an example is if the child's learning the word elevator and they learn it, you know, they learn to say the word elevator, they learn how to use the word elevator. And then they, at the same time, you show them how to spell it. If you later ask them, what is this thing? And you don't ask them to spell it. You just ask them to tell you verbally what it is they're more likely to correctly produce the word elevator when they've learned how to spell it too. So it's kind of a cool thing we call orthographic facilitation because it's orthography is the letters. And so the idea is that when you're teaching vocabulary, it's good to teach it in all modalities. So speak it, write it, talk about the meaning um, and all of those things together will create a better, stronger representation of the word. So probably gonna see, you know, bi-directionality there that occurs. Great question. So interesting. I, I learned so much. Um, all of these questions have been fantastic. Um, we have one final question, which is not, um, is not, by myself, but the person asking was Mary, and I could definitely, having seen a little bit of your schedule, could have asked you this as well. Um, more than one person wants to know, how do you find time to sleep? <laughs> well, this is a great question to end on, because the way I am able to sleep is because I work with an amazing team like you, Mary, and all of my doctoral students and undergrads and collaborators. And uh, a lot of times, as the director of a lab, you're the voice of the lab. Um, and as a collaborator, you might be the voice of a collaboration, but I'm only the voice of it. Uh, the work itself is done by so many people and I have the honor and privilege of sharing that work, but it is a team effort. So that's how I sleep because I have an amazing team that's doing so much and, and I just get to uh, to be um, the face of it and, and proudly share the work that they're doing and promote them as much as I can. So. <laughs> I, I think that's a funny one because I do sleep. <laughs> <laughs> that is good to know because we need you to keep doing this amazing work. And we all at the lab, I can speak for all of us that we love working with you. And it's um, we're just doing really great things. So we're we're very excited. 
Well, thank you so much, Mary. Um, and thank you so much to the listeners for getting me to 50 episodes, such an honor. And, uh, you know, when you listen to this episode, I've already got several in the hopper that are going to be coming out. And this is, it's so fun to learn from everyone I get to speak to and to share that learning with you and to hear from you as listeners. So thank you so much. Thank you. Check out www.seeherspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.